Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 13 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists RNQ. This episode has all been recorded at the VCIA annual conference in Burlington, Vermont and my guest co-host is a man of a long history and connection with the states, Dan Toll, president of Seeker, the Captive Insurance Companies Association. Dan, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Richard. Uh, glad to be back on the podcast. Yeah, I think it was episode uh, five or six, I think, we put, yeah, or seven possibly, when we put the talk about the mentorship program and, and obviously when we were at Seeker as well. Yes, uh, that week was a little bit of a blur, but I one of the highlights absolutely <laughs> was sitting down with you with uh, two of our mentees and hearing about them and, and how their experience has been. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you on, and we have got a lot of ground to cover. In this episode, we will also be joined by Jan Kladowski, Vice President at Agri Services Agency, which runs a sponsored captive for parent company Dairy Farmers of America. That is a fascinating captive story and a huge operation for us to get our teeth into. And the third part of this special episode will be a discussion with some of the panellists from the hot topic session that took place on Thursday morning, including Vermont's Deputy Commissioner David Provost and my former colleague at Captive Review, Nick Morgan, with a few other special guests. So Dan, of course, you're now president of Seeker and we'll come on to the association uh, in due course. But today, as we're sat on the on the shores of Lake Champlain, it would be remiss of me not to ask where it all began for you in captive insurance. I understand you joined the state of Vermont 20 years ago in 1999? It was 1999. I had been in banking for almost 10 years at that point in time. Uh, for that was when I was in college. And the big excitement at that point in time was the Y2K that was coming up. So, uh, so I double-dipped for a little while. I actually <laughs> stayed on. The, the, when I decided to take the, the job at the state of Vermont, and we can get into that a little bit more, I had committed uh, after several years of preparation as a banking officer that I would stay on for Y2K just in case you know, the sky fell and all the vaults opened and things like that. So, And then, so, how do those captive conversations start to start to happen? Well, uh, I had been promoted when I was in banking, and I inherited a book of business called Captive Insurance, and I'll be quite honest, I really had no idea what it was. I, I look at looked at the roster of clients. It was many Fortune 500 companies. Uh, they had very large balances. Uh, when it came to servicing the accounts, these were great, fun people, uh, really enjoyed it, but I really didn't know what Captive of insurance was and uh, a job opened up at the state and uh, I hadn't been looking but I had several of my friends in the captive insurance industry reach out to me and say this is really an opportunity you should look at and uh, I hadn't even put together a resume ever before since I'd gone straight from working part-time and until full-time position and so I put a resume together submitted it and thought hey what the heck maybe I'll, I'll I'll see what this is all about and to make a long story short I thought I'd do it for two years and 17 years later it was a great career opportunity. And obviously, I presume a great opportunity to see Vermont was already a leading domicile at that time in the U.S., but obviously the growth over the next 10, 15, 20 years was, was pretty impressive as well. A absolutely. Um, during my time there, I worked for four governors. Uh, I saw the licensing of five or 600 captives. Um, but keep in mind, in 1999, if you were onshore, that meant you were in Vermont or Hawaii. And offshore was Bermuda Cayman and everyone else. It was a very, very different landscape. In fact, I think there was... Uh, the SICA conference, VCIA, and World Captive Forum were the only captive insurance-specific conference. So a very different landscape. It's, it's changed a lot over that time period. But uh, 1999 was, a, was an interesting time to get into captive insurance. Yeah, for, su for sure. So 18 years in Vermont then before About you... About 17, yeah. 17 years in Vermont before you joined uh, SICA as president in April 2017. 
How was that transition to a new role and obviously having to take a much broader perspective of the industry, whereas obviously primarily your, your interests were primarily in Vermont before that? It went very well. Uh, certainly very pleased to have taken the role. I've loved every minute of it. Um, I think my background in Vermont, we always had a very holistic view of the marketplace. So that, that didn't change that much. Uh, we obviously came to a much broader perspective with Sika. But a lot of the relationships, a lot of both professional and personal that I made through the industry certainly served me very well in that transition. So, so you touched on uh, obviously the, the domicile landscape and how much that changed in, in those in the last twenty years that you've been in the industry. What have been some of the other most obvious captive industry changes you have witnessed um, in that time? Again, when we first started, or when I first started, we'd spend more time explaining to people what captive insurance was versus how it can be an effective risk management tool. So that's one of the things that's really changed. I know we still think that much of the marketplace doesn't understand what captive insurance is, but we were at a much more elementary level back then. And it was much the incubation period for get a captive from starting to think about it to actual fruition was much, much longer. Um, and things now are obviously much more sophisticated. You know, some of the, some of the basics that uh, were put in captives back then are still the basics now, the workers' comp, GL, auto, liability. Um, so those are still there, but obviously the sky's the limit with what can be put into a captive insurance uh, company, and that's been very exciting to watch and see that evolve. And And it was one of the great things about being with Vermont is very often when those unique and sophisticated ideas came forward, I was able to hear straight from a risk manager and, and their consultants about what they wanted to do. So it was, it was a great role to, to kind of see what you know, what the possibilities truly were. Great. Well, our first guest this week is Jan Kladowski, Vice President at Agri-Services Agency. The agency is owned by Dairy Farmers of America, the largest cooperative of farmers in the United States, and manages a sponsored captive in Vermont, which provides workers' compensation insurance to its members. Janice is also a VCIA board member and began by telling me why the captive was formed in 1996. Agri-Services Agency started about probably 50 years ago. It started with a health insurance program because farmers couldn't get health insurance. But very quickly, our farmers also told us they couldn't get consistent workers' compensation for their uh, businesses. And in the United States, it's workers' comp is federally mandated but state-regulated. So in New York State, we had a lot of farmers who would have insurance, but then they'd be canceled um, by their private carriers because there was a problem in predicting the frequency of catastrophic losses. When that happens, um, usually businesses need to go to, to either the state residual or the state fund insurance program, and they can charge what they want. So obviously it was becoming very expensive for our dairy farmers, especially since our dairy farmers have a limit on what they can charge for their milk. So with that, uh, they went to um, the then Dairy Lee um, president and said, what can you do to help us uh, work around this? And we stumbled on actually a captive solution because back 25 years ago, it was still being developed. And we settled in Vermont, which is probably the best thing that ever happened um, because Vermont was a big dairy state for us. So um, that's how we got started and we uh, really got started in one of the best domiciles I think that uh, we could have for the best reason because a lot of our folks were dairy farmers in Vermont as well. And what is your role uh, at that, the company? 
Okay, so I run the captive. Uh, we have a sponsored captive. Uh, we have one health captive cell. We have a workers' compensation captive cell, and we're looking to develop another cell for our farmers. Um, I handle everything from soup to nuts. So I get involved with the investments, the actuary, the uh, risk management of the program. Um, I have a staff of 15. We do the underwriting. We do the rating. Uh, we talk with our fronting carrier on um, underwriting guidelines. So we manage the whole program and. And um, we're very proud of it. We also connect very deeply with our members because our members can call us. And I have a very um, ag staff skill sitting in an office where dairy and agriculture is big. So we, we learn from each other. And that helps us service our customers. So I understand as well that the association uh, through the captive works very closely with the, with the farmers, the members on, um, on the risk management as well. Can you tell me a bit about that and how the captive supports uh, that risk management? Sure, that's probably one of the best points that we have. Um, when I started uh, working for the captive, it was pretty evident that we did not have a good risk control or loss control program for our farmers. We are having losses, we are seeing trends, but we weren't helping them with what needed to be um, what they needed to do and getting um, life safety issues in force. So very quickly, we started a loss control department, and um, today we have five people scattered all over the United States that go out to our farmers and work with them on identifying hazards and helping them put in a safety program in place, which really has, I've seen the losses come down. Um, additionally, uh, we have what we call a stewardship program where we take a look at their losses, their injuries that they're having, and it's very detailed where we can tell the time of day, uh, when it happened, when there's spikes, when there's not, and with that information we can develop some very interesting foresights, like what's happening on Wednesday, you seem to have a lot of uh, losses. Well, they may have an influx of maybe new cows coming in, or, you know, it, it, it's a busy time for them. So when that happens, we make sure our loss control people are there to help put together a safety program that are identifying some of the more pertinent um, issues that are going on that they may miss because they're interested in processing and getting the milk. As you know, um, cows are milked. Milk sits in a bulk tank. The, um, it sits there for a short period of time before a milk truck comes and takes it to the manufacturer. So it's a very fast process once they get done doing the um, milking. And people have to react rather quickly. And the other thing with our business is that we're just not dealing with an English workforce. We have uh, a lot of migrant workers that we deal with, and that's very important too because we also have a bilingual loss control person who helps um, get through the culture and talk the language so we can make sure that we're developing uh, a meaningful program that reaches all of our, all of the members, I should say, all the employees of our members. And um, how has the captive evolved and grown over the years? And I believe that it has expanded. I think even when you started, I think there was a staff of three, and you mentioned you're now up to 15. So how, how, has, it all, how has it all grown? Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's true. When I started, we had maybe $9 million in business and, I don't know, maybe 500 members, um, three staff. And now today, we, I have a staff of 15, and we have about $30 million in premium, and we have about 1,500 members all over the country. So it has evolved, but we, we also have evolved from just doing dairy to doing all agriculture and all businesses who support the agricultural industry and that has helped us a lot with our spread of risk um, and diversification of risk and in the dairy industry itself because they have cycles like the insurance 
folks have cycles with their pricing. Uh, having a diversity has allowed us to manage good and bad years by having other classes of business in there that perform well when maybe another sector is doing poorly. So that has also been a very important part of our program is making sure we have more people, a diversification of businesses, and uh, again, our loss control and our claims management has helped us really manage the whole program. And so why is the sponsored captive structure uh, so appropriate for you guys and has it always been in that structure? So this is a really funny story. When I started working for Agri-Services Agency, we had just finished with our second audit from uh, the Department of Vermont. Apparently we were a parent and then we were an association. Um, so they, they told us at the second audit, well, you're really more of an association than a parent. So we operated as an association for a while. Then in 2010, we decided we needed to become a group or a sponsored captive. And the reason why we did this is because we were looking into the future knowing that we needed to add other lines of coverage underneath the captive. Um, so that's what we have done. Um, since that time, we've added a health care captive or health, I should say, medical reinsurance for our members and we are looking to add another cell that provides property and casualty uh, for our members and I guess the nice thing about it is is that we're trying trying to structure a program that provides insurance coverages that are important to a dairy farmer and not have all the fluff that we know that they're not going to use or you're paying something for but it doesn't mean anything in their particular business because their business is very different than a manufacturer. How then do you go about the activity or the process of reviewing the captive and its its role and, and value to the group? Is there a kind of a is there an, a formal process in how you do that? How do you communicate with the wider the wider group about the value of the captive? I'm going to say it's both. Um, informally, we look at what's going on with the captive on a monthly basis. Um, technology is really changing how our farmers are working, and we have quite a diversity. We have some of the older farmers that don't even want to know what an email is, and then we have the younger farmers who are operating their tractors from their iPhone. So we have a diversity. Plus, on top of that, technology is changing how our farmers are working, and we're starting to see it in bits and pieces across the country. Um, so we know it's going to be rolling in pretty quickly. So we monitor that uh, on monthly. Um, we're very fortunate to be part of a dairy cooperative, so we sit in on meetings that they have all over the country. So regionally, we have an understanding of what's happening out west and what's happening in the east. So we take that back. We take a look at it. We look at our program, and then we're starting to develop or starting to look at um, more technology uh, in putting that into our program. How can we work quicker, faster with our farmers um, that they're spending more time at their operations, less concerned about insurance and risk? So that's that's taking a lot of time because there's a lot of different companies out there, like insure tech companies. There's a lot of different companies out there that are developing programs with blockchain. You need to make sure that you're not just glamming on to something because it sounds good you need to make sure it's going to meet your needs and that's what we're doing in, in the vetting process so we're doing that um, we do that monthly uh, we also have um, quarterly meetings informal meetings with our board and then annually we have our meetings with our board with our board of directors but we keep everybody informed whenever we are moving into an idea that's just I should say it's just more than idea it's something that we're we're funneling for
The Global Captive podcast is supported by RQ, the award winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers, and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement, whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Seeker President Dan Toll. Dan, you are more than two years now in your role, having taken over from Dennis Harwick in the spring of 2017. If you look back to then, what do you, what did you see at the time as the main priorities for the association? I think, first of all, everything was working out very well. Dennis had done a great job carrying the association forward, and it was my job to make sure that that continued. Um, that said, I wanted to give a fresh perspective to everything we were doing, and just because we'd always done it that way didn't mean we were always going to continue to do it that way. Uh, I also thought that the association could be much more than it than it was. And I think we needed to think bigger and be a little bit more bold, expand some of the benefits to our members. And and fortunately, the the board and I all had the same view with that. And I think we've done a great job over the last two years, sort of expanding our scope, expanding, you know, giving ourselves a louder voice in the industry. Um, And we've done a lot of that through social media and through our different advocacy work. And again, expanding some of our programs, and I, I know we're going to talk about them as well. So again, I've been, it's been very exciting to, to be a part of this ride, and I'm very, very glad the board's been supportive and our members have been very supportive of the work we've done. So, so one of the kind of uh, flagship or recent initiatives that Seeker launched uh, just earlier this year was the uh, Next Gen Task Force. Um, we kind of touched on it a little bit before when we talked to Ian Davis and, and Karen Z and Seeker about the uh, mentorship program that you launched. Kind of, obviously, they're kind of those two things will be related. Um, so, what is the concept then behind the, uh, the the task force for the next generation, and how do you expect it to develop such initiatives uh, further? Sure. Well, first of all, the big picture is we all know that we're an aging population of captive insurance professionals, and it's been discussed for a number of years. And uh, we wanted to take some actionable items to hopefully move the needle forward with creating opportunities for young professionals and uh, to to both exceed and be mentored and nurtured. And that's why we launched the mentorship program. We also wanted to raise the awareness level of these types of careers. And so we launched the student essay contest. And all of this sort of falls under professional development. Um, and again, we've, we've changed some of our educational uh, track to include a professional development track. And much of that is geared towards young professionals. But we really felt like we needed to take it to another level and we wanted to bring together a task force of young and new professionals to have a seat at the table and to give us real actionable items you know we've done a lot with social media but you know what let's make sure that's all resonating with young professionals we've done a lot with educational resources but again we want to make sure that's really hitting the mark so uh, we brought together a group we've already met twice Uh, there's been a lot of great excitement and enthusiasm Um, I think we've got uh, a great group and I'm really excited about the recommendations that they plan to put forward later this fall uh, to to the Seeker board. So I guess it's a, a watcher space uh, for now then until until the Seeker board can can have a look at those recommendations. Yeah, we I don't want to put too much pressure. We we were early on we were asked to you know announce who was on it, and we are going to post that at some point here in the near future. But we didn't want to put any extra pressure on this group. Uh, but 
again, I think, uh, and I'll just use one very small example. Uh, before this group was formed, when I when I came on board, the two social activities we had were golf and tennis, which uh, one of the individuals who I reached out to is on the task force who said those are old man sports. And I said, well, you're right. <laughs> and nothing wrong with old men, but we needed to come up with things that would have a broader appeal. And so we, we looked at the landscape of other social activities, and that's really how the brew tour came about, was I got feedback that this would be something that would be a little bit more interesting. And as we've learned over the last two years, it's a broad audience that come. So a lot of risk managers, we've got older individuals, we've got young professionals. And again, it's really hit the mark with what we wanted, which was to give everyone an opportunity to network. Yeah, and I can definitely say as a as a participant in the first two years of the uh, of the brewery tour at the last secret conferences that it, it's definitely been a worthwhile exercise. And I would echo the thing about the diversity mm-hmm. as well. Actually, it is a really diverse group, and and you're right about the cat thrones that come along. You do, um, yeah, it's just a really fun fun day and a nice nice relaxed way to kick off the conference. Yeah, yeah, and so again, that just that's one little actionable item that that I expect those sort of things to come out of this group. And I've encouraged the group to submit some sessions for uh, consideration for the conference and. I think, again, that that's a great opportunity for not only them to uh, potentially have an opportunity to speak, but to organize a session and what have you, which is a real good thing for their overall experience and their professional growth. And I tell you what young people like. Young people like podcasts. So I don't know if there could be some synergy there, but we'll talk about that off air perhaps. <laughs> yeah, well, if I, if I could put you on the spot, I would love to have you have it be part of your regular, you know, yeah. whether it's a monthly thing to feature young professionals and, and young opportunities. And, and I might do that same pitch or I will do that same pitch, I should say, with the, the Amplify Women, because I think these are great things for the industry. And, and one of the things that um, I think is great about Sika's approach to this is I would like nothing more than if every other association said, yeah, we're going to do a Young Professionals and we're going to do a, uh, an organization group to, to help support women. That's great. I'd love, to, I'd love to help any of them with that because that's what's really good for the industry. And I'm glad that my board and our members are behind us having that sort of leadership role in the space. Great. So you touched on it there, the, uh, the Amplify Women initiative, which you launched just uh, the week before VCIA, the start of August. Uh, I've read a bit about it from the press release sent out. Uh, can you just explain how you expect it to, to materialize and, and, and uh, to hopefully make a, to make a real difference? Sure. In many cases, there are similarities to our young professionals, I meaning it falls under our professional development area. Um, when you look at the statistics of uh, women in leadership positions in the in the insurance space, uh, we don't have any captive specific data. Uh, it's quite sad. In fact, there's about six. You know, data shows about sixty percent of of the insurance population is women, yet less than 20% of them are in leadership roles. Um, I th- I'd like to think, and I do think we do better than that in the captive space. In fact, we have two great role models with Nancy Gray with Aon and Alan Charnley with Marsh at the top of the food chain, which is wonderful because part of what this program hopes to do is to identify good mentors and, and, and other people you can aspire to be. Um, we have an opportunity with Sika because we do place speakers on conferences and what have you. Uh, we also think we can use our voice to help encourage with other associations to, again, put more women in positions of growth and opportunities to speak and, and to showcase the talents they have. Great. It sounds great. And we wish you luck with, with all these new initiatives that should certainly be welcomed and embraced uh, by the industry. Next, as we are here at VCIA, I thought it would be a good idea 
to hear from one of the most hotly anticipated panels at the conference. It's usually a challenge to try and run a session first thing on the last morning of any conference, but the Hot Topics panel always draws an impressive crowd of around uh, 200 uh, plus people. Dan, Dan, you and I, we've both spoken at this session. You've probably spoken at it about 150 times. I just did it a, f- a few times. Uh, it, it felt like that at times, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> it was always, it wasn't, wasn't always an early start, was it? No, no. In fact, uh, that was something I, I negotiated with because we used to, uh, when I was on the panel, the the hot topics was always the last session on the last day, and it was a way to anchor everything. And uh, everyone has a busy week at the conference, but certainly at that point, being a Vermont employee and all the activity, it was we were completely exhausted and then have to put on the last uh, session. So. Uh, one time after we did this, I said, we can just not do this anymore. And uh, and I went to Diane Leach and said, hey, we got, we got to move this to a different time. And so this was the alternative spot, which, again, is early on the last day, but much better than last on the last day from our perspective. And uh, it was always an exciting panel, uh, always enjoyed. Uh, Dave's got a great candor about him and even though yeah yeah and even if you think you might know what he's going to say he still surprises you and uh and there's always a good team up there and again it was it was fun to do it with you and others for quite a number of years and i'm looking forward to this year as well and well this year my former colleague nick morgan was handed the moderating duty so i was watching him carefully and as ever the panel was led by davis provost deputy commissioner for captive insurance in vermont but they were also joined by some other heavy hitters as well and i caught up with all of them straight after they came off stage. I am delighted to be joined by the Hot Topics panel from the VCA Annual Conference 2019. It was an excellent panel moderated by Nick Morgan of Captive Review. We also had Jim Swanke from Willis Towers Watson. We have Josh Redding from Lifetime Captive, owned by Lifetime. And we have, of course, David Provost, Deputy Commissioner for Captive Insurance, and Sandy Biggleston, Captive Director. Nick, uh, it was your first time moderating the panel. I used to do it until they, they kicked me off a couple of years ago. And the, the general purpose of this panel is to put, a, I think you guys prepare like 10 or 15 hot topics and we ask the uh, audience to choose what they think are the hottest and you guys are prepared to talk about them. So Nick, first of all, how, how did you find your first experience moderating the panel? And then can you just run through kind of what were the hottest topics which we're going to talk about today? Yeah, the panel was great. We had a full room, about four or 500 people it seemed in the room. And we, yeah, we prepared 10 topics and we did a review of some hot, uh, hot breaking news as well. The top four topics that uh, came up, and it wasn't by a huge margin, was firstly looking at the harsh market, the changing market conditions, then innovation and disruption, blockchain and the distributed ledger, and finally self-procurement tax. And we just had a time to answer a couple of other bits, um, looking at risk diversification and a bit on 831Bs. Well, I think let's take uh, that top one, the hardening or harsh market is definitely a topic that we're seeing in Europe as well. It's not just a a US phenomenon. And uh, I've been talking to a few of my guests on the podcast about that. So I'd just be interested to chuck a question to the regulators first. When the commercial market is hardening, how do you kind of look at the state of the captives? Are they prepared for that? Are captives looking to take on more risk? Are you starting to have those conversations? And that's really sort of how we see the commercial market hardening is we get the inquiries about, uh, you know, our reinsurer has dropped us or our insurer has dropped us um, or there are fewer reinsurers in the market willing to take our business. And so we we'll get plan changes from companies um, requesting, we need to retain more risk or we're, you know, we're cutting our panel of reinsurers in half 
not voluntarily, it's, it's being cut in half. So our reinsurers are taking on more risk. So that's, that's our first sign that things are getting tight is when we get those plan changes requests. From my perspective, I, I have seen um, companies that we've had for 30-plus years that have weathered hard markets before. Um, in the soft market, they've become very uh, service-oriented, so that will bode well for them to take on new membership if it's a group captive, take on more risk because they've built up surplus. They're, uh, um, what I'm finding from my perspective is that they're ready for the hard market. Yeah, and Jim, from your view holistically, what are you seeing from your clients in, t- in terms of the, the last renewals and how it's, how it's reacted? July 1 was a really a tough renewal for a lot of organizations. That availability is becoming an issue again, which is one of the signs of a hardening market, that carriers are cutting back on their capacity and their limits, and uh, cost of insurance is going up at the same time that the carriers are cutting back on their capacity. So. Anyone with a captive is utilizing it to basically fill those voids, that if they're not fully subscribed in a layer, their captives are now being used to basically top it off. And so uh, the actuaries in our firm basically think that this is going to be a longer-term phenomenon because the carriers are losing such high amounts of money and the investment income never really bounced back. So... I think we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg with the July 1 renewals and that risk managers and their captives really need to be prepared uh, for the next couple of years as I think we are definitely in a hardening market. And Josh, in terms of your experience of the hardening market, how is it affecting you and do you kind of have the captive on standby ready to step in as and when it might be needed? We certainly do. It's a great question. We're a fairly young captive, however, lucky for us, uh, years ago we had the foresight to put this captive in place for you know, a time like the, this that we're predicting is going to happen. Um, and I think it's, it's certainly helped us, even in the current marketplace, uh, have some leverage with our partners to have them understand we're in control of our own risk, we're managing it well, and uh, as a result of that, we're seeing some good results, but uh, certainly could be challenged in the future, and as an organization, we're ready to um, increase the utilization of our captive should we be in that position to need to. Dave, a question for you. In terms of uh, captives that are reacting to the uh, hardening market, neither forming new captives or adding lines, are there red flags that you look out for? I wouldn't call them red flags. It, it, we have to make sure that they have adequate surplus to bring on new risk, and, and those companies that have been around a long time have been through a cycle before, that's exactly what they've, they've done. They, they planned on this, they expected this to come at some point. Um, for the newer companies that maybe are, are reacting immediately to, wow, we got a hard market, now we need a captive, um, there's a little bit of a concern that, well, didn't you know this was coming two years ago? Or, or you know, it's, a, it's the same when you have a company that wants to form a captive at the very year end. You know, uh, Risk managers should be looking a little further ahead than, than the, the final month of the year. But as a huge red flag, no, as a, as a minor concern, it's just one more part of, of the whole process when we're looking at forming a new captive or, or allowing a captive to expand its plan. Dave, looking at the self-procurement tax issue, we know that Mike Cradler of Washington State has uh, gone after a few companies and some people say he's twisted the, the, the laws, but um, do you see the issue going away or is it, is it very much here to stay? I, I don't see it going away. I, I see that being um, just a basic cost of running a captive now, that you have to consider the tax regime in your home state. 
Um, and that's been brought about by by Washington and by uh, the other Washington with the, the uh, not admitted reinsurance reform act. Um, so some states have self-procurement laws on the books and don't particularly spend a lot of time enforcing them. Others are beginning to look at that and enforce them. Uh, Washington took a different approach that the, the captive is operating in Washington uh, against Washington law, um, but still let you off the hook if you paid some taxes. But, you know, it, it's, it's part of the environment now. States are, are after revenue in any way they can get it. So it's, uh, it's not going to go away. And Jim, how how are your uh, clients reacting, and how much activity is this? Is this restricted just to Washington State? No, it's not restricted to Washington State, and in fact, a lot of other states are now looking at this and uh, making inquiries to their uh, the companies that are domiciled in their states and uh, and how they're purchasing insurance, including captives. Um, you know, the important thing here that we're telling our clients is that get organized around the issue that historically most captive owners have not paid the self-procurement tax because they've always taken the view that captives are a form of self-insurance. Well, that still doesn't mean you're not going to hear from uh, the local tax people. And so the time is now to figure out what is your home state? How am I going to organize around this? What historically, what might I owe? And then prospectively, what is the potential tax? And then get senior management involvement in the organization so there is no surprises at the C-level. So I, I think David hit the nail on the head when he said that this is a potential money-grabbing opportunity for a lot of states and it's important for risk managers and uh, organizations to get organized on this topic because I think it's only going to spread. And, and Josh, obviously of course the, your captive is already established in, in Vermont, sure. but if you were uh, a risk insurance manager today with an organization looking at uh, forming a captive, would, would self-procurement tax be, uh, be a factor in that decision? Definitely needs to be considered. I don't think it, it would rise to the level of um, deciding not to do a captive, but it should be a part of the analysis. And, uh, you know, if I look back to when we formed our captive and, and if we had that in the, into the consideration, I think we'd be in the same position today. And the, again, overall self-procurement tax included uh, the benefits of the captive far outweigh any negative impact that, uh, that we're going to have with this new trend. And Dave, do you see the future of captives being home state only? <laughs> Excuse, me. Good news. Excuse me. Uh, no, not at all, because there's, there's still a lot of captives that do not uh, this won't apply to, even if even if applied in, in full. Uh, any tax, any captive that is fronted, uh, you already pay the the home state tax essentially through the front company. It doesn't apply to risk retention groups. They generally pay taxes to the states they operate in, either on the admitted basis or, or surplus lines basis. So there's a lot of captives where it just doesn't apply, and there's going to be a lot of states where it won't apply. And then there'll be other states. Uh, California does not have a self-procurement tax, or if they do, they don't have a captive law. Uh, New York has both and has figured out we'd rather collect the self-procurement tax and have the captive in Vermont. They're, yeah. they're quite content. And, you're, and Vermont's seen quite a few redomestications or redomiciles from New York to yes. Vermont over yes, the last couple of years. Yep. So on the theme of hot topics, Dan, uh, what do you see as the, the real big ticket items facing the industry today and over the next 12 months? Well, certainly I think everything that's going on in Washington State and, and really more holistically how that uh, 
potentially shakes out with other states. I think there's always uh, concern about how home states apply self-procurement taxes or other taxes towards their captives. Um, I think that is going to bubble up into some sort of a conclusion. Um, we've been very active with Washington state stakeholders, and uh, there needs to be some sort of solution that works for everyone. And uh, what the insurance commissioner has put forward right now is not going to work for everyone. And, and uh, I think potentially there's going to be some law changes that may occur, and, and, and I think the captive industry is ready to support something that can be agreeable to them. So uh, we're going to watch that very closely. But still, the self-procurement tax issue is something that, that's of concern at all times to us. Um, I think certainly we have some more um, cases that may come forward uh, with the IRS and, and small captives. And, and again, that might be beneficial. It might not be. I think we'd all like more clarity in that space. Um, certainly, uh, we've been watching that closer than we have perhaps in the past. Uh, we put some guidance out about pooling, which I think has largely been regarded as a very positive um, guidance document put out by SICA. Um, but I think there's there's going to be some interesting things that may come down the pike there, and uh, that could have broad effects and hopefully positive effects. I mean, SICA has a long history of advocating for best practices and doing it right, and I think we're getting closer to more of the industry falling in line with, yes, we really should be doing this right or we're going to have problems. Um, certainly, we've talked about the next generation. Those are That, that, that will take a longer time, um, but I think that's a topic that I'm glad that uh, as the as an industry leader, we're, we're addressing and we hope others will, will you know, support us in that. Great. Well, that brings us almost to an end of episode 13. Thank you to everyone who have joined us in Burlington the past few days, not just those who have featured on this episode. I've recorded about 25 interviews over the last few days. So there's loads of excellent content in the bank to keep us going for the next few months of the Global Captive podcast. Thank you to Janice Kladowski from Agri Services Agency, the panellists from the VTIA Hot Topic session, including David Provost, and of course, Dan Toll, thank you for coming on and being my co-host. It was a lot of fun, Richard. Glad to be here again. See you next time, Captives.